Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. An autocrat full of self-confidence following earlier military successes and convinced that a neighbouring country has no right to exist, draws up plans to invade it. In making these plans, the autocrat has no hesitation in overruling his generals. The generals, knowing what's best for them, accommodate themselves to their master's rulings. The invasion is launched. It is conducted on a wide front with multiple targets. No effort is made to win the hearts and minds of those whose lands are being occupied. Logistical planning proves terribly flawed. Equipment proves inadequate. Initial successes prove illusory. The invasion grinds to a halt in front of the capital city of the invaded country. The operation has not gone well. Dominic, that is a tried and tested technique, is it not, of historians writing uh, articles in newspapers and so on, (laughs) where you get two distinct two separate events and you kind of yeah. model them up well of so, course i would never use myself tom <laughs> so you're talking about so this is what tony blair 2003 <laughs> is it so uh was i what was i talking about there was i talking about uh, putin's invasion of ukraine or was i talking about hitler's invasion of russia Gosh, would you say twist. that the parallels there i mean there are parallels aren't there or rather, am I am I being glib in drawing? Well, I'm not sure. Thing? You said to me you were you were absolutely desperate to do this podcast because you thought there were tremendous using all your knowledge of military history. You thought <laughs> there were tremendously compelling parallels, um, and I think you'd been fed that line by a member of your own family, Tom. <laughs> yes, am, am I right? Yes. Uh, so yes. Yeah, so um, a podcasting novice, clearly desperate <laughs> to appear on the show. <laughs> so yeah. So fans of our sister podcast, we have ways of making you talk will know that my brother, James Holland, and uh, his partner, Al Murray, on the show did two brilliant episodes on um, Hitler's planning for Operation Barbarossa, in which certain parallels were drawn out between Hitler and his preparations for invading Russia and Putin and his preparations for invading Ukraine. Now, we don't want to major on them, but James, bro, (laughs) you're out there. (laughs) I thought that was I thought that was brilliant. You did I mention, did genius. you not, when we when we met a, couple, a few days ago that, uh, that that there were certain parallels, and I was absolutely so excited about them that I rushed back and persuaded Dominic that we should do this straight away. <laughs> Hitler and Putin. Before we come to that, can I just open with a, a question? So we put that question saying we're doing uh, Operation Barbarossa, and without a doubt, the best question was asked by Chris, who asked, "How close did Frederick Barbarossa come to establishing imperial control <laughs> over the papacy?" I did see that. <laughs> Which is an excellent question. Now, James, course, no one should have to answer that question. <laughs> well, no, but my bro would want to answer him. know all about that. <laughs> so Frederick Barbarossa, the 12th century emperor who ended up drowning while going on the Third Crusade. Um, and I'm guessing the reason that he gives his name to the uh, to Hitler's invasion of, of Russia is because he's kind of like the German King Arthur. He's supposed to have... Um, to be in a cave in a mountain range in Thuringia. The Untersberg. No, he's also supposed to be in the Untersberg, which is the view that Hitler had from his house, the Berghof in Salzburg. Okay, so is that why they is that why they call it Operation Barbarossa? Well, they're kind of thinking of sort of groovy names are cool, exciting, potentially war-winning um, operations. And, you know, Barbarossa is a bit of a kind of folk hero. And, you know, the Germans are constantly sort of harking back, the Nazis rather, sort of harking back to this sort of weird sort of mythological period. 
um, about which they don't know very much. And they, they sort of mix it all up into this sort of, you know, world ice theory mixed with Arthurian myths mixed with Barbarossa. And it all sort of goes into a kind of a sort of melting pot of nonsense. And is, is that melting pot of nonsense part of what persuades Hitler to launch his invasion? No. No, it's not. Well, the melting melting pot of nonsense, nonsense in so much that that they absolutely believe in their own superiority, um, and believe that the the Soviets are and East Europeans are Slavs and untermenschen. All that stuff is absolutely the case, um, and you see this right from the very top right down to the very bottom of people recording in their diaries, whether they be senior generals or whether they be you know ordinary lancers. They sort of go, you know, I looked at this person and I just realised sort of how primitive they were and how appalling they were and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so James, let's let's do a bit of context and then we'll do a bit of chronology. So we are in, I mean, the, the operation uh, begins on Sunday, the 22nd of June, 1941. It's one of these extraordinary set pieces in the history, you know, this colossal invasion force crossing the frontiers into the Soviet Union. Um, it's a turning point in the Second World War. It's one of the great moments in the Second World War. Um, so at that point, to, to external observers, you know, Hitler has had his tremendous successes in the West, the Low Countries, France, Scandinavia, and so on. Um, Britain has been resisting alone. We talked about that with you before when we were talking about um, the summer of nineteen alone, along with the Empire and Dominions. Yeah, alone. Yeah. Okay, alone in Europe. Shall we and eighty-five percent of the world's merchant shipping is. Oh God! But yes. Tom, we've got to stop having these woke guests on the show. Um, so, okay. So, so Britain, as you just rightly said, James, was standing alone. And um, at what point so, – so Hitler has, as many listeners will know, the prelude to the Second World War was that um, the Nazis and the Soviet Union had signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, so the non-aggression pact, and they basically divided you know, Poland between them. The Soviet Union had taken the Baltic states. Now – we had a question from Jorge Leighton. Uh, was there any chance of Hitler honouring the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact? So 1940, going into 1941, is Hitler already planning the attack on the Soviet Union? Has he been planning it all along? Um, or is, is, it, is there a kind of contingency that explains why this happens? I, I think that the moment Hitler takes power in um, January 1933, I think the one thing that is absolutely guaranteed that there is going to be a clash of arms at some point between Nazi Germany and the, United, and the USSR. Um, when that happens and what form it takes is obviously completely up for grabs at that point. Um, Hitler is originally sort of thinking, he doesn't think of the Second World War as, as the Second World War. He thinks it is a series of, of limited operations. Um, so the first limiting operation is against Poland. And, you know, that's sort of done and dusted in a matter of weeks, um, pretty much on schedule. Um, then the second one is obviously going into Scandinavia. That's another limited operation which sees Denmark and um, Norway fall under the Nazi yoke. Um, then the third one, of course, is the invasion of the West, Case Yellow, uh, which is the Low Countries and France. And France is a is a big one. You know, by today's standards, France is a superpower um, in 1930, 1940 um, and crushed in six weeks. So these are all limited operations. As far as he's concerned, you know, with, with Britain, Britain's lost its army, which is the sort of biggest humiliation of all, because um, he's a land lover and a continentalist. So that's how he, you know, that's what he views as the most important thing. Um, so he's expecting Britain to sue for peace. Um, and the, the war is won. And then at some point, a few years down the line, when he sort of, you know, built up some more stocks and built up some more strength and kind of, you know, got an even bigger army, then he'll invade the Soviet Union, perhaps 1943, perhaps 1944, something like that. But it's the Battle of Britain that forces his hand because he, he doesn't win. Britain is still in the fight. America's hovering in the in the in the background, um, sort of fighting a proxy war, delivering um, arms to um, to Britain, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so he realizes that actually he needs to 
regain strength and and particularly resources of food, especially um, agriculturally. Germany because the Royal Navy are throttling. Yes, because from the 1st of September 1939, there is a there is an economic blockade. And if you look at the, the your geography and look at the map, you see that Germany's got a sort of very complicated little bit of sort of Baltic coast at the top, which is sort of get out into the world, you know, to get out into the North Sea, you've got to sort of get through lots of narrow channels and through islands and things. Then it's got a little strip of the of the North Sea coast, and that's it. Um, and even with France subdued, you know, the blockade is still extant. Um, and the Royal Navy is the world's largest at the time. So it's, it's pretty effective at, at, at blockading. Um, and they don't have enough fuel, they don't have enough food. And going into all those occupied territories in 1940 and early part of 1941, they've been a bit like sort of children in a sweet shop. And they've just, you know, the cupboard is bare, very, very quick order. And I'll give you an example of this. So in, in January 1940, France is the most automotive country in Europe. Um, and there are um, eight people in France for every motorized vehicle, whereas that figure is 47 in Germany and 106 in Italy. And by... The 31st of December 1940, France has 8% left of the vehicles that it had on the 1st of January 1940. Goodness. Wow. Because, because the, the Germans have... They've just nicked it all. They've just nicked it all. Uh, and they've nicked everything, and they've taken all the coal, and they've taken that. So, so suddenly all those factories don't work anymore. Right, so those factories don't work either, that's, and that's the key thing. Well, no, because, you know, but so, so France is suffering from, from the economic blockade, as is Denmark, as is Norway, as is everyone... Um, within Nazi Germany's, you know, Greater Reich, because the blockade exists for all of them. I mean, you know, it's, it's stopping all of them. So, they're, they're su- so France is suffering from that, but it's also suffering from the fact that their industrial complexes don't work very efficiently anymore because all the things that make an industrial complex work, coal, uh, workforce, um, food for the workforce, fuel, oil, cars to get people to the workforce, to move things out of the workforce, trains, locomotives, all the rest of it, all those things have been stolen by the Germans, so it doesn't function anymore. So at what point, James, do you think, well, do we know from the sort of archival sources, do we know the point at which Hitler said to his generals, okay, we're going to go into the Soviet Union now? Yes. So so the, the first decision is mooted in July 1940 when Britain that doesn't early. come to the peace term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not, he's not convinced about it. He's not absolutely, yeah, we're definitely going to go. But it sort of builds and it becomes, and he becomes, you can see him becoming, as it's absolutely clear that, that the Luftwaffe is not going to subdue the RAF, and it's going to be completely impossible to do a, a cross-channel invasion. I mean, even Hitler, who's a sort of military nincompoop, um, even he can, can see that the conditions have not been met by September 1940. And therefore, you know, what do you do? You've got a bit of a problem because Britain's still in the, still got skin in the game. Um, so what are you going to do? Well, okay, here's a plan. Um, we know that the, the, the Slavs are under mention. We know that they were completely useless in the Finnish, Finnish war um, uh, of late 1939, through to the beginning of 1940. Um, We know they've had the purges and have killed sort of, you know, executed four of their six marshals, 23,000 officers, et cetera, et cetera. So how hard can it be, especially since we've just won in France, which is a kind of superpower and had, you know, is is a modern functioning Northern European state for the most part. So, you know, how hard can it be? And that's, that's where the thinking starts to, starts to come in. And, And suddenly it's the only solution. In fact, actually by the spring of 1941, there is only, there are only two viable options left to Hitler. And the Nazi regime. One is to go into the USSR and hope it works, or sue for peace. And obviously, he's not going to do the latter. You said that he'd been pla- he'd, essentially the moment he came to power, it was inevitable that Nazi Germany would go to war with the Soviet Union, or the Soviet Union would go to war with Nazi Germany. But but from the from the Nazi point of view, why is that? Is that because the Slavs are living in Lebensraum that the the, the Germans? should claim, or is it because they're communist? What is is it the racial or is it the ideological? 
aspects of the Soviet Union that are, are, are most offensive to Hitler? It's both. It's, it's this, this idea that, that the world is, is, is threatened from um, a takeover of communism orchestrated by global Jewry. Yeah, they're, they're, they're surely interwoven, Tom. So the, the, Completely. The, so the Soviet Union are communists because they are mention. Yes, and yeah. communisms are really, really hated by by the Germans because well, for those who are those Germans who aren't communists, I should say, um, because communists are seen for the as one of the main um, causes of the end of the First World War because the, the, the it was a communist mutiny in the in the German navy that sort of kick started the whole sort of you know showdown to the end. And if you're a Nazi, your your worst enemy is a communist. And and one of the reasons so many people back the Nazis and, and indeed so many people in France, for example. Um, um, side with Nazi Germany rather than, you know, the Allies and, and, and the Free French and all the rest of it is because of that fear of the westward spread of communism. I mean, that is as as, as clear and present a danger as is the westward spread of Nazism to to those in Britain, for example. So, James, if that's, I mean, Hitler has has never hidden his his anti communism or his loathing for Slavs and so on, and given all that, and and given that he is talking to his generals or he's he's talking in private about attacking the Soviet Union as early as the summer of 1940. Why is it that the, the Soviet Union, the Soviet leadership, are, are blind to this? Because they are kind of blind to it, aren't they? Yes, because because, it, because firstly, it doesn't make a huge amount of set military sense on one level because the Soviet Union is so vast and the manpower reserves of the Soviet Union are just absolutely enormous. Um, and also because, to a certain, to a very large extent, actually, the Soviet Union is already feeding Nazi Germany in terms of resources, essential resources. And of course, the moment you invade, these get cut off until you've completely won. And, you and can those resources are include oil and gas. Yes, and and, and food and a whole whole bauxite and so food and, from you know whole Ukraine, sort of the different... bread basket and yeah, all that 100%. kind of stuff. Yeah, right. all that okay. sort, of, sort of stuff. But the point is, they want it for themselves. You know, they don't want to share it with any Slavs and Untermenschen. You know, so that's that's their thinking. So, so Stalin. So what? Stalin thinks we're giving Hitler all this stuff anyway. It's just simply not in his interest to invade us. Is that what Stalin thinks? Well, it's partly that, but it's also partly partly Stalin being naive. I mean, Stalin's gone through these 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 purges of the late nineteen thirties, and you know, the army, the armed forces, Red Army is 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 in disarray, but they're also they are preparing and and doing an awful lot of work and building. You know, they've got. Double the number of artillery pieces that that Germany has by the summer of 1941. They've got something like six times the number of aircraft. Now, a lot of those are obsolescent and no longer kind of fit for purpose. But they're still aircraft. Um, ditto with tanks. You know, the new tanks are coming in, so they are gearing up as well. And there's no question about it that that they are preparing for a showdown with Nazi Germany, and that they're thinking about invading first. I mean, you know, it is going to happen because yeah. Stalin sees, you know, in the same way that. Um, the Nazis fear the Western threat of, of spread of communism. The communists fear the Eastern spread of Nazism. So, as well they might. Mm-hmm. As well they might. Um, it's just that despite huge amounts of evidence to the, that, that this is going to happen, Stalin refuses to accept it. And it's, and it's one of those weird, inexplicable things where he just completely loses the plot for a bit. And, and, and very quickly, you know, for a moment, he's absolutely that rabbit in the headlights. And very, very quickly, he he gets a grip. So there's all the you know everyone's sort of going you know start um, you know comrade I, I you know I think there's quite a few signs that the Germans well, are kind of that, up to something. No nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. So, so let's talk about that. We're getting to 1941, but Hitler's initial plan is not to invade when he does invade. So the invasion is put off, isn't it? So he's forced into he's hustled into it, doing it much early. 
Parachute Mafia, do you think the outcome would have been different if the offensive was launched in May as originally planned? And that's because Mussolini has got embroiled in the Balkans and Greece. Yeah, no, it wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever because the fundamental okay, well, just, problems... Just, just, tell us, just tell us about what hap- why Hitler has to delay it first and then, and then tell us why it doesn't actually make any difference. So the whole point of the... So the Pact of Steel, which is signed between Italy and Germany, is, is really a, is an alliance of convenience. So the idea is, is that um, Mussolini doesn't have to worry about his northern flank and he can just concentrate on, on creating a new Roman Empire, you know, the Mare Nostrum and all the rest of it, the Mediterranean and stretching all the way down into East Africa and North Africa and, and, and so on and the whole of the Aegean. That's his, that's his ambition. To have an empire which is sort of, you know, sort of old, old Roman in, in kind of sort of scope um, in many ways, apart from the Europe bit. And, um, uh, and, and Hitler doesn't want to have to worry about his southern flank at all. You know, because of Germany's central position in Europe, it's quite vulnerable. And he wants to be able to just sort of concentrate on attacking the West and attacking the East whenever he wants to, without having to worry about the southern flank. But unfortunately, um, Mussolini is also a military nincompoop um, and even worse equipped. And he goes into Greece, first of all, and makes a complete hash of it, and the Greeks fight back. Um, and then he goes and invades um, Egypt, which is a British protectorate, and the British fight back and makes a complete hash of that as well. So Hitler has to come to his rescue or re- or risk lose his southern flank and make his southern flank vulnerable. And his southern flank is particularly precious because Romania is the only source of German oil, uh, of which is of, of vital importance to his war machine. Um, and so he just cannot risk it. So he has to go and shore things up and, and help out his ally, um, Italy. Uh, and that involves going into the Balkans. It involves sending troops to North Africa. And it also involves um, invading Greece. I think you can argue very strongly that it doesn't involve going into Crete. Um, but be that as it may, they do. Um, they lose 50% of their most um, well-trained infantry troops, the paratroopers, the Falschmjäger. Uh, and they also lose a further 250 transport aircraft, which certainly would have been incredibly useful. Um, in Operation Barbarossa, but but they're not the reason why they lose. But I it mean, delays I, I can, the start. It did. It, so it did, but it delays the. It delays the start by a month. Yeah. So so why is that not significant? Because lots and lots of people say yes, that was hugely significant. Well, this is really the crux of the entire podcast um, because I don't think they were ever going. They ever had much chance of winning because the the scale of what they had to achieve was so enormous, and they were tragically um, for them. Um, massively under-resourced for the tasks that they'd given themselves. And that was down to just a misappreciation, hubris, um, total lack of of self-awareness, and of underestimating the enemy and underestimating the challenges. And, And there were lots and lots of warnings, and they just ignored them all. Well, first of all, on the... I mean, they do have nevertheless colossal numbers, don't they? I'm just reading here. They have thousands of tanks, 4,000 aircraft, uh how many divisions 153 divisions i mean that's anyway they build all that up and and the delay presumably gives is one reason why there are so many rumors i mean there's always these famous stories about sort of people slipping across frontiers and swimming rivers or whatever and pitching up and saying to the to the red army i have information yeah you know and then being shot as their (laughs) as their kind of reward or being thrown into prison or something why is it so at this point so we're, we're, we're sort of may june do as this huge military buildup, do some people in the Soviet kind of hierarchy do they know it's happening, but Stalin's refusing to listen? Or or are they all deluding themselves that these are just Nazi exercises? Well, if you or- if you remember the last few few months we've before um um the Russian the, the, the Russian attack on Ukraine, there were troop buildups, troop buildups all along, weren't they? Yes, and everyone's yeah. going, No, it's not gonna happen. He's not really gonna do it, or he might mm. do it, but it might just be kind of it's just a tactic, it. yeah, just a it's political just a tactic, game. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's the same sort of thing. The key point about it is, yes, they're attacking with 3.6 million men. 
It is the largest clash of arms in terms of scale that the world has ever seen. But it is simply not enough because 3.6 million sounds a huge number. Of course, it is a vast number. But but that needs contextualising because 90% of the hard yards has to be done by a quarter to a third of the troops involved. So the, the absolute key, because because Germany is so under-mechanised, the lion's share of the work, the, the absolute spearhead, is is carried out by these four panzer groups. And the panzer groups are effectively groups of mechanised armies. They're, they're, they're groups of all arms units of, of motorized infantry, motorized artillery, tanks. and of course tanks, and yeah, and you know, cool BMW motorbikes with sidecars and all the rest of it, and half tracks and armor cars, and you know, when you when you think when you think Blitzkrieg, Nazis on the march, that's what you're thinking about. But that accounts for only 39 divisions, uh, and of those, only 17 are Panzer divisions, and the Panzer divisions are the creme de la creme. You know, these are the all arms. One of those 39 divisions is the 1st Cavalry Division, which is horses. Yeah. It's horses, the Germans, you know, the modern Germans, the, the, the conquerors of Europe. They are going into the biggest clash of arms with a horsed, mounted cavalry division in their spearhead. So once you sort of break that down, you know, 39 divisions, each division is 15,000 men, of which only about, you know, nine to 10,000 are actually fighting troops. So that's only about you know, 400,000 men are doing 90% of the work. And 400,000 is a lot less than 3.6 million. So, so there, is, there is a kind of obvious parallel with yep. what's been happening in, in Ukraine, that actually the, the huge obvious, size yeah. of the Russian army, it's actually people say it's not big enough. And, and you could say the same about the Germans. Well, because you, need guys, to, you yeah. need guys to drive the uh, horse and wagons and supply chains and all the rest of it. So the question is, are there people in the, in the German army who are pointing this out, who are worrying yes, about this, who are drawing absolutely. up reports. Yeah, and this is what's really interesting. So in the planning of Barbarossa, so w- one of the people who's been told to, to, to do sort of war game it, sort of sand table it, so do a sort of, you know, a, a theoretical planning, not, not an actual war game, but kind of, you know, on paper, what have we got? Where does this work? How are you going to set How's it going to How's it going to go? All the rest of it. An appreciation is General Friedrich Paulus, who later... Oh, uh, the irony. The irony. Yeah, the so irony. commander in Stalingrad. Yeah, but but in 1940 he is on the the OKW, which is the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, which is the German combined staff, um, combined forces general staff, um, and and basically it's Hitler's mouthpiece. And he does this study, and he sort of goes, oh, I'm, not, <laughs> "I'm not quite sure this is going to work, actually." Um, you know, the, it's just not stacking up. You know, the distance is too great. The logistic chains of this huge, huge, huge logistic problems, and everyone goes. Oh, not worry about it you know it'll be we've fine. got the, the triumph of the will <laughs> triumph of the will it'll all be fine right. you know we're they're to mention their slaves. it'll be fine let's just forget about it and everyone sort of goes oh, okay fine then then there is a kind of sort of okay what, so what's the economic appreciation of this you know how, how can we function you know have we got enough oil have we got enough rubber have we got have we got enough food you know the supply lines have we got enough trucks to kind of do enough it you know to maintain the, the effort because the whole point about the german way of war is is the fair point the kind of you know hit them hard at the main point do a huge great kettle schlacked and envelopment war annihilate your enemy very quickly it's all gonna be wham bam 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 you know three weeks six weeks five days, whatever. And the whole point about Barbarossa is that this is supposed to be a war of annihilation in three months max. You know, if it hasn't done it in three months, it's game over. It's, you know, it hasn't worked. So General um, George Thomas, or Jörg Thomas, if you like, he is the head of the OKW, the German General Staff's Economic Division, War Economic Division, the Wirtschafts- und Rüstungsamt, as it was called. And 
he is asked by Keitel, who is the chief of staff. So he's the absolute top military guy under Hitler. And he's asked to do an economic appreciation um, on the 22nd of January. And he files his report with Keitel on the 8th of February, 1941. And the report is quite damning. You know, it says, well, you know, going to run out of fuel in two months. Um, we'll run out of rubber in six. Um, we haven't got enough to sustain it. Um, we can't rely on the Ukrainians because probably the Germans will do a scorched earth policy, blah, 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 blah. And Keitel just goes, oh, no, 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 this won't do a go at all. Go away and rewrite it. So he goes, okay. Uh, and he comes back on the 13th of February, five days later, going, well, it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, this is going to be a piece of piss. And everyone goes, great, let's go. I mean, seriously, it's it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And on top of that, I mean, you know, there are also all the – because Hitler's way is to have this sort of divide and rule. So there's lots of these sort of parallel command structures. So you have – you have the the War Economy Office under under Jörg Thomas at the OKW, which is to do with military financing, but that's also tied in with Göring's four year plan, and, and Göring now owns most of personally owns um, most of German industry, a heavy industry. Then you've got Walter Funk's Ministry of Economics as well, and then under that you've also got twenty seven further national finance offices, all of which who are kind of sort of not remotely joined up in any way whatsoever. And you've got lots and lots of sort of small industries. So you haven't got any kind of nationalised sort of British rail equivalent or anything like that. So consequently, when they invade, they've, it's true they've got, you know, zillions of, of vehicles for their four panzer groups and others. But they've also got 2,000 different types of vehicle. Now, I'm, I'm trusting that neither of you are particularly mechanical. I know you're not at all, bro. But, no, but, I'm not. but Tom, but, I know but, the discussion of historical trucks is very dear to your heart. <laughs> well, this is what I'm excited is, about. Well, <laughs> the point about this is, is that, of course, if you're, if you're an independent truck manufacturer, it's a bit like, you know, in the old days being an independent horse and cart manufacturer. You know, you just do your own thing and they, they all have certain principles. They've got a bit of suspension and they've got wheels and, you know, they've got wooden bits and all the rest of it, but they're all different. And this is the problem of having 2,000 different vehicles, many of which are British, many of which are French. Because Czech. you don't have the, 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 parts. the bits to repair them. The parts. That's because, no. because, because your distributor cap and your coil and your spark plugs <laughs> and your, and your, uh, your gasket, you know, that's a word that you must have heard of. Um, they're all different. No. Tom, you assured me before your brother came on this podcast that it would not, absolutely not degenerate into a discussion of World War II trucks, but it clearly has. No, so, I, I, I said that no, it no, would. It's a principle. So, it's a principle. So, it's a principle. So, before we, in the second half, um, we will, we should talk about violence, about the sheer violence of the, of the German attack. And yes, the and where it all goes wrong. And we should also talk about Ukraine specifically, because that was mm. obviously the peg for doing it. But before we do that, one last question before the break, and it's about war aims. So the Nazis' dream scenario, James, you said, you know, they want to do it in two or three months. The Nazis' dream scenario where do they stop and what has happened and what does that involve? Does it involve the extermination of all the population? Does it involve massive slave camps, um, the implanting of, of, of settlements? I mean, what's, what do they think yep. is going to happen? They, they haven't really thought it through at all. So, so the idea is that they encircle the entire Red Army who, when they invade, will come forward to meet them. They'll then encircle them in a massive giant circle, encirclement or series of encirclements and destroy them within 500 kilometers of where they start, which is sort of, you know, from the central point is Brest in, in what is now Belarus, Belarus I think. Yeah. Belarus, yeah. Um, um, was Poland at the time. And, um, and, and that's the, that's the assumption. And, and, and almost every bit of that doesn't happen. 
And then what do they think they will happen? Then they'll turn the whole of the Soviet Union into a Nazi empire? They'll capture Moscow? What do they think? Yeah, they'll capture Moscow. They haven't really thought about how So Moscow is their initial target, isn't it? I mean, that's, and that's quite No, important. their initial target is, no, their initial target is 500 kilometres to destroy the Red Army. But, but the, the German high command, their, their ultimate target is Moscow rather yes, than but, Leningrad but, but, or but, Kiev. Yes, but they can get, they can mark, they can walk into Moscow once they've destroyed the Red Army within yeah, 500 okay. So in other words, they think it'll be a little bit like the, I mean, I, I know neither Tom nor I am a military specialist, so you should correct us if we're completely out of line, but they think it'll be a little bit like the conquest of France. So they won't have to have a siege of the capital. They'll just be able to waltz into the capital, having already won the war. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what they're thinking, and they have. And and how it'll all pan out, they haven't really thought through at all. Right. So so there are there are huge problems about going beyond. (laughs) The great thing about two Hollands is they just talk over one another, and it just goes on forever. So that is the plan. Come back after the uh, after the outbreak uh, and find out how it actually went. At this moment, a march is taking place that, for its extent, compares with the greatest the world has ever seen. I have decided today to place the fate and future of the Reich and our people in the hands of our soldiers. May God aid us, especially in this fight. So that was very much not a friend of the rest is history. Uh, Adolf Hitler making his uh, debut on our podcast. Uh, Enough of him. Uh, So James Holland... um, brother of the of the lesser known tom holland um james you're here to talk about operation barbarossa and we've done all the war aims we've done all the sort of planning and the and what you see is the shambolic planning so the day itself i mean the the moment that it happens so it happens in the early hours of the morning as these things tend to and it appears to be a complete triumph for the germans i mean yep. they carry all before them the, the soviet union are completely taken by surprise disaster their, their entire basically am i right in thinking that the soviet operational command or whatever is completely blown away in the in the opening hours of the of the war completely blown away completely blown away uh they have these series of encirclements and actually smolensk is captured on the 15th of july so you know what's that 15 plus you know eight um in just over three weeks um which is incredible you know and smolensk is what 700 kilometers so it's it's, it's beyond that great they've, they've captured three quarters of a million men um so many that they don't know what to do with them it's, it's, they capture so many because people are ready to surrender. It, it, it's a failure of, of the high command. It's not that they – no, not really. It's not that they are particularly ready to surrender. It's just that the, there is a failure of leadership at the very, very top. For a whole host of reasons, it's too cumbersome, it's too top-heavy, it's too controlled. Um, but with very, very quick order, um, Stalin and the senior commanders sort of, to a very large extent, get their, get themselves together. They create the Stavka. Um, which is a sort of, you know, high command, of, which is Stalin, of course, is still um, overseeing. But, but you know, that's put in place. Um, uh, they start massive, massive um, um, recruitment. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, is on the 20, 22nd of June, 1941, there are 14 million Soviet people um, who have already had some form of military training who are in reserves, you know, that can be called up. Uh, and in 1941, there are three million Soviets who are due to come of age and become 18 that year. Okay, can I ask the obvious question then, which Brian Williams poses? Was victory by Nazi Germany achievable, or was Barbarossa always doomed to fail? It was only it was only achievable if the Soviet leadership was even more crap than it was. Right. The Germans did not have enough, or the right planning, or the right thinking, to achieve it without the help of the Soviet Union. 
So let me ask you about the Soviet Union then, because um, Stalin, the, the story goes that he gets this, these phone calls from Zhukov or whoever, um, sort of the early hours of the morning, people can't get hold of him and he's, he's dumbstruck. He can't, isn't this amazing story that Zhukov rings him and Stalin's just kind of panting, breathing very yeah. heavily on the other end of the line because he's taken so much unawares. But but is is this James an interesting difference between Stalin and Hitler? The start, does Stalin basically does he sort himself out and let his generals take care of it rather than interfere, or is he still masterminding everything after the initial shock? No, he he absolutely is not. He and, and that is the reason for the the Kursk encirclement, which is completed on the fourteenth of September, which is the biggest single victory of all, where um, some seven hundred thousand. Um, are captured in one one fell swoop. Who wins that? So this is a German victory against the Red Army, and it is. It, but but that is the end of it. You know that is the last one, and that is because Hit- Stalin repeatedly ignores the advice first of Zhukov, who warns him on the twenty ninth of July. At the time Zhukov is is chief of staff, so he's the senior guy. He's the equivalent of Keitel or Marshall or or General you know General Brook um, to, to the British in the war. He's the top military man. And he says you need to abandon Kiev and get get the other, Kiev as it then was and get the other side of the Dnieper River, um, and, and and Stalin just goes no, there's absolutely no way we're going to abandon Kiev, which is the third largest city in the USSR. No way, Jose. Um, and uh, and Zhukov says in that case I demand that you allow me to resign and give me a, a, a posting on the front. And because Stalin is Stalin, he goes fine, off you go. And, and so so he does. Um, and then there are other repeated warners. You know, you know Kurpanos, who is the, uh, the the commander of the Southwestern Front. Front is a group of armies. Um, so you, you know, you're talking about a, a, a really seriously large amount of men. I mean, I think there's six hundred fifty thousand men in the Southwestern Front. Kurpanos says, says, you know, as as September August gives way to September, it says, says, you know, I have to be allowed to do this. I have to be allowed to pull back. And so I just goes, absolutely not, no way. Um, but by this point, but I'm sort of jumping the gun. So he 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 is imposing himself. And one of the lessons of Kiev in 1941, the capture of Kiev and this, this huge, massive encirclement of, of over 700,000 Red Army troops, is that at that point, Stalin does back off and start listening to his commanders and letting the better commanders go forward and go through to the front. And, and you know, Zhukov is one of the beneficiaries of that, of course, um, and, and listening to them in a way that the absolute opposite happens with Hitler. That Hitler, who demands the Kiev encirclement, um, diverts forces away from the strike to Moscow at huge expense, uh, and then goes, "Told you so." We've had the biggest victory right. ever, but actually, it's a pyrrhic victory. Okay, so so one of the one of the obvious points in comparison with the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that it it was a kind of three pronged. They didn't just target on us; they didn't have a single target. They dissipated their forces. Is that what the Nazis do? Because they're targeting Leningrad, they're targeting Moscow, and they're targeting Ukraine. Is that right? Yes. So, so what you've got with the German invasion, you've got three ar- groups of armies, three army groups, army group north, army group south, army group centre. And army group centre is the biggest. And that's got, you know, three panzer groups to start off with. And and, it, and it's the absolute and Moscow, main And that's effort. the one that's targeting Moscow. Yes. And that's, 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 that's Field Marshal Fyodor von Bock is the commander of that. And he's, he, that is targeting Moscow. It's going straight for, first of all, you know, that's the, from Brest in a straight line through what is now Belarus to Smolensk, takes Smolensk on the 15th of July. It's all looking absolutely fantastic. But then thereafter, it, it kind of, the Red Army response starts to sort of stiffen. Yet more men appear. And suddenly there's sort of, the first of, of much bigger tanks. I won't go into the detail, Dominic, don't worry. But, 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 <laughs> but, 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 but they're bigger. And the Germans haven't seen anything like it. Um, and there just seems to be, it doesn't matter how many they mow down, more 
Red Army troops seem to appear. Um, so it's a bit sort of Hydra's head like. And while all that is happening, there's this, so, so there is this sort of huge stride across the map to start off with, and then it just completely slows down. And while this is happening, this is when Hitler then suddenly says, actually, let's not worry about Moscow for now. Let's go and take Leningrad in the north, and let's go and take um, Ukraine in the south. So um, I'm going to divert lots of troops from Army Group Centre, this group of armies in the centre of the line, and divert them southwards. But that's you can't just sort of click your fingers and expect that to happen because there are huge supply chains involved. And the other problem is with Panzer Group 2, which is you know one of these spearheads that I was telling you about, this sort of group, they're groups of divisions. It's like a, it's like a group of armies in a way um, of, of motorised troops. To go southwards is then cutting across the flanks of... The Red Army lines. So why is he doing it? Why is he? Why is he suddenly changed his plans? Because it's all taking a bit longer than he thinks, and he can see that the the Red Army is stiffening in Army Group Center, and because he's suddenly thinking, actually, the whole point of going here was not to take Moscow; it's to is to get land and territory and resources. Yeah. It's also need. oil and stuff, isn't it? And so. oil and and you know the further south we are, the closer we are to to Baku yeah. and Azerbaijan and the Caucasus, which is where all the oil is. I mean. Even even that is total la la land because they haven't got any capacity to to refine it or indeed transport it. So James, let's talk about Ukraine specifically because you mentioned earlier on the battle for what we then called and what we called until a few months ago Kiev. Yeah. So obviously, a lot of the fighting, ha- I mean, then as now, happened in Ukraine. Yes. Do the Germans think that they that the Ukrainians who, of course, had fought for their independence, or some of them had at least, after the Russian Revolution in the early years of the 1920s, do they think that they will be greeted as liberators? Or do they think, well, who get, the Ukrainians are just yet more Slavs who should yeah. be exterminated and, and all this sort of stuff? I mean, because they seem to have a very confused, shall we say, nationalities policy where they, they want to be greeted as liberators, but also they then want to exterminate the people who greeted them. Yeah, it's, it's exactly that. And and again, you know, it's just none of it stacks up. It's not consistent in any shape or form. Um, but broadly speaking, they, they could have won over certainly the Western Ukrainians without any problem at all, I'd have thought, for the most part. Um, and they would have had a large number of people who were prepared to fight for them um, against Stalin. I mean, Ukrainians are no friend of, uh, you know, um, no friend of Stalin in any shape or form, you know, thanks to kind of, sort of millions being starved in the 1930s. So, um, they've got sort of potentially willing people, but no, they're all they're all Slavs and undimensioned too, and they're impoverished and and, and just sort of you know backward peasants and, and deserve nothing but complete contempt. Um, and so they go around sort of burning torching villages and sort of you yeah. know, anyone who looks sort of vaguely Jewish or, or a disruptor, they get shot. And so does that it's, mean it's, it's is, not really winning hearts and minds? Is the implication of that though that um, with a different, I mean, in, a, in some parallel universe where that invasion is being led not by ideological Nazis but by German nationalists? sort of world war one type if you like like mm. ludendorff types or something yes. that that is that is the implication of that that they could have had the germans could have had much more success if they had co-opted ukrainian nationalism i mean i mean for one yes, thing but they're we, never going talk- to because the whole war is an ideological war in the first place so that's yeah. you know the, the, the kind of what if just doesn't work with the nazis well because- so, so on on that topic we've got two questions one from guillermo te avaledo was the cruelty on the Eastern Front directly derived from Nazi ideology or was it inevitable? So in other words, is, is, is the savagery hard-baked? Is it part of, the, part of the kind of, you know, it was always there? Or does it arise from the, the kind of the horror of the fighting? And then, and then just one other question, which is, which is kind of hanging over this. 
the whole discussion we've had so far from Dave Rich, what role did Barbarossa play in the escalation of the Holocaust? So specifically mm. with the Jews, it absolutely does, um, because it is an ideological war. The, 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 there is this ideological element which is not there in any of the operations in the West, the Blitzkrieg in the West. It's just not there. Then. Whereas it absolutely is a fundamental part of the whole thing. You know, this is this is to rid the world of Bolshevism, and you know, which is uh, overseen by a, a cabal of of world Jewry. So, so these guys are all utterly contemptible. I mean, you know, when they go into when they go into Ukraine, you know, the the same aforementioned George Thomas is putting together a plan called the Hunger Plan, where they're just basically going to rape um, all the food of Ukraine. Um, and they think sort of quite casually that that could probably lead to the deaths of 20 to 30 million people. You know, this is this is not the SS. This is this is the Wehrmacht planning office that's coming up with this plan. I mean, as it happens, you know, Stalin insists on a kind of scorched earth policy anyway. So anything that's useful to the Germans is burnt as they retreat. Um, uh, and anyone who gets in the way of the Germans is also sort of burnt and shot and, you know, villages torched and all the rest of it just because they're sort of in the way and someone's sniped from them. So, you know, they just bulldoze the whole lot. I mean, that's the, that's how it is. So it just escalates. But but it escalates it very, very quickly in, in the USSR and particularly in Ukraine and particularly in the Baltic states, actually, because in March 1941, Hitler has briefed all his commanders and basically given them carte blanche to do whatever they like. You know, this is a this is an ideological war. This is a total war. It's a war of annihilation. You know, whatever you do is fine by me. And have they been briefed? Have they been briefed particularly to target the Jews? Yeah, of course. Yeah, Einsatzgruppen have been put have been have been created specially to follow on behind the lead troops to come in and round them all up. And you know, of course, that's exactly what happens when they do take Kiev. They take Kiev is captured on the nineteenth of September, nineteen forty one. Um, there are then some delayed action explosions which have been left by the Red Army, some depots which have been mined and booby trapped, and they blow up. I think on the twenty like, second and twenty fourth of September, something like that. Um, and on the 29th, from, and so so clearly that that that, that must be Jews. Um, and so they're all rounded up and, you know, 33,771 are uh, executed at Babi Yar, just outside Kiev on the 29th and 30th of, of, of September. And Himmler witnesses this and goes, oh, that's disgusting. It's horrible. We can't have our men doing that, shooting people. He's in a Dutch. You've got to think of something else, which, of course, leads to, you know, Cyclone B and the, and the death camps. Um, just on a quick question about um, nationalities. I mean, we talked always about the Germans, but obviously it's not just a German operation, right? There are Romanians, Finns, Italians, Hungarians, yeah. and mm-hmm. Slovakians. Are they are they merely an adjunct, or are they yeah, a key part of that? No, okay, they're merely an adjunct. They're in Army Group South, and because they're so bad, badly trained, they're given so utter nothing but utter contempt by the Germans. They don't really help Army South's progress. So you've got these three prongs, these three groups of armies. You've got Army Group North, which is going into the Baltic, clearing out the Baltic, and then pushing on towards Leningrad after Hitler changes his mind. You've got Army Group Center, which you remember I was saying was the biggest, strongest one. Then yeah. you've got Army Group South, which is commanded by von Rundstedt, who's the commander of Army Group A in the in the Western um, in, the, in the Battle for France and the, in the Low Countries and everything in, in 1940. So he's sort of a big cheese. Uh, and where Army Group South is really struggling is, first of all, their allies are useless and, and rubbish and ill-trained and ill-equipped and not very good. Um, and the second problem is is these huge distances. I mean, these vast, vast distances. So one of the other assumptions um, of, of Barbarossa is that, that what they'll do is they'll just capture um, Soviet rail stock and then they'll just use it for their own purposes. But, of course, the Soviets just destroy them or either take them back with them or if they can't, they destroy them before the Germans can get their hands on them. There's a whole host of problems with this. The first problem is that Soviet um, loading gauge is wider than that of the German and European loading gauge. So the Germans then have to use their own locomotives and their own rolling stock. But as they move forward into the Soviet Union, they've then got to narrow the gauge. So every single bit of rail has to be moved, you know, a couple of inches to the left Mm. or whatever. 
Can you imagine how long that takes and that, that distance? The second problem is that Soviet um, locomotives are bigger and they, they can go further with less refueling of coal and water. So the Germans, their, their Kriegslok, which is their sort of standard train, they then have to put in more coal stops and more water stops as well as narrowing the gauge to get anywhere. And, as you, and you can imagine, I mean, this, this, is, this is not conducive to speed. Uh, and it's just a total misappreciation. And it's also a problem, isn't it, which I, I know from listening to the um, two excellent episodes you did on, on the planning for Barbarossa <laughs> on We Have Ways, that um, there are no petrol stations. Well, there are. So, I mean, so in France, when they invade, there are petrol stations conveniently situated for all the tanks to fill up or whatever. But in Russia, there are no there are no petrol stations. There are none. I mean, as, as I said, France was the most automotive nation in Europe. So, of course, there's lots of petrol stations and workshops and all the rest of it. Those do not exist. Yeah. Um, and and Germany is very, very under mechanized as well. So they've got double the problems because they don't have enough mechanics, they don't have enough people, in, they just don't have enough spanners and you know all the rest of it. I mean, just, it's just the whole thing is this sort of spiraling. The military term for this is the culmination point. The culmination point is the point where you can no longer operate in the way you want to operate because your your lines of supply are just too long. And your your lines of supply become so long that half your half your capacity is spent feeding the line of supply rather than the people at the front. Mm. And to put this just just to sort of where it's already going drastically wrong in July, despite Smolensk falling on the fifteenth of July, despite these huge, huge gains and, and seven hundred and fifty thousand Soviet prisoners or whatever the figure is, one Panzer division is down to twelve tanks by the eighteenth of July, and the whole of Panzer Group Two, which is the large single largest Panzer Group. The, the, that is the absolute creme de la creme. This is all the kind of 20 to 30 year olds. This is all the fully trained people. This is all your sparkly tanks and, and BMWs with sidecars and half tracks and armor cars and all the rest of it. They are down to 29% of the tanks that they started off with on the 22nd of June. It's completely unsustainable. So my point is that even if they'd gone in a month earlier, it's not, it's not the time that's the problem. It's the, it's, it's the expanse. And the and the Soviet response to this, you you know, the value of a of a German tr- soldier is just far greater to the Germans than the value of a Soviet soldier is because of the manpower. But James, isn't, the manpower. isn't it also the case though that wars are won not just by logistics, but they're also won by politics? And that one of the the Germans' big mistakes is they they underestimate Russian patriotism. Yes. They underestimate their will to fight. They underestimate the res- because they think communists are wretched and and, yeah. and deluded they, they underestimate the resilience of the of the soviet machine i suppose so even if they'd taken Complete, let's say they let's say they'd encircled moscow you know you're going to probably say that was un, you know unimaginable anyway but let's say they'd done that let's say they'd fought their way into the center of moscow as napoleon did of course yeah. would that have brought them victory or would, was russia was the soviet union always too resilient politically to fall I think so. I think there are moments. There's a moment in October 1941 where there is sort of mass panic in Moscow. There is obviously a moment in the opening days of Barbarossa where, where it's looking pear-brained. I mean, you know, Stalin absolutely does not help himself by insisting on um, keeping Kiev and, and keeping the southwestern front up at the Dnieper when clearly it was going to be encircled. So the idea of the encirclement from the German point of view was that this 
this Panzer Group 2 comes down from, you know, from the Slomensk area, down southwards through Bela, what is now Belarus into, into northern, um, northern Ukraine, but, but east of the Dnieper River. And Panzer Group 1, which is part of Army Group South, going south into south of Kiev, into, you know, pulling up to the, getting a bridgehead over Dnieper, near Dnieper Protovsk, um, would then swirl northwards, and so they come down and meet each other, and there's this huge pocket of circlement in the middle, of which Kiev is caught in the middle of it. And this is a very familiar from what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, that actually well, it's quite difficult to coordinate these kind of... It really is, and the, and the point is that Army Group 2, Panzer Group 2 particularly, is absolutely on its knees by the time of the join-up. So it looks like an amazing victory for the Germans. And it is in terms of the amount of men they've captured and the kind of disaster for the, for the Red Army. But they are they're so they've been so chewed up in the whole process that they're they're on their knees. And at that point, you know, Hitler's also saying just a few days before the actual meet up, the join up actually happens on the evening of the fourteenth of September. It's about six twenty p.m. just north of a um, just south of a north of a little place called Lubny. Which incidentally is is fanatically defended by civilians and um, NKVB NKVD people, which are obviously former KGB, um, uh, with people chucking Molotov cocktails and firing from the rooftops at these Panzers. But they still, you know, Lubny falls, and this join up actually happens just. But at the same time, Hitler's going, okay, Barbarossa hasn't completely won, um, so we need a new operation, which is going to be Operation Typhoon, and that is going to be back again towards Moscow. So everyone's yeah. sort of going. But we were going to Moscow and you've just diverted us all down and we haven't got Leningrad. And OK, we have got this massive encirclement, but all the encirclement is telling a lot of the people on the ground is the absolute infinitesimal reserves of the Red Army because they're still in the game. They've still got an air force. They've still got guns. They've still got more men to come. You know, they've still got these, they've still got 14 million people they can call up. They've still got, you know, these 3 million people of the 18 year old age group, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's sort of for Hitler. Kiev is is an endorsement of his military genius. You know, everyone everyone thought he was wrong in 1940, and he proved them right. He you know he proved his commanders wrong. The numbskulls, they're these Prussian elites, and everyone said, mm, "Fear, I don't think it's a good idea to sort of you know divert from from Moscow. You know, we, we go go into go into Leningrad and and um, and Kiev." And he's like, "Told you so." You know, look look at that. It's the biggest victory ever in the history of the world. He still feels the need, though. He he does have the sense that it hasn't gone well enough that. We- they need a new operation. So effectively, this is also yes. the end of Operation Barbarossa. This is yes, and that's the point. It is that Kiev. Kiev is a is a is a terrific victory on one level, but on another level, it's it they're winning themselves to death. That's the point. But James, and, and okay. that is that is before the snow falls. That is before they've got to Moscow. They're all there. All but actually, but there. here's the here's the question though. So from the the picture you painted, that the Germans have lost this 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 colossal gamble within months weeks of, mm. of making it but then the and they're exhausted the are some you know group whatever panzers are on their knees all this stuff so so my question would be well why why does it take so long then for them to be beaten because they're going to be in russia for years i mean they're fighting in stalingrad they're fighting these colossal tank battles a couple of years later how is it that they're so that they are so resilient if if the operation is so misconceived yeah, that's a really good question. So they get that you know the, the the Germans do press on Operation Typhoon. You know, it it is incredible what what they managed to amass for 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 that attack, and it's all based around you know Army Group Center again. So 
replacement tanks have come up and, and so on. They're still a fraction of what they were on June 19, you know, the start of Operation Barbarossa, but they do manage to have a sort of a concentration of force to a certain extent by stripping from Army Group North from stripping from Army Group South and putting all their eggs in one basket of Army Group Centre. To be, to, you know, that is how Operation Typhoon is is able to to happen. And and that happens, that they get any success at all is largely because of the encirclement of Kiev, which is almost entirely down to the incompetence of Stalin. I mean, you know, that, that is 700,000 people that do not need to be in the bag and are there purely because of Stalin's incompetence. It's, it's about, it's, it's, it's who, is, who is the least incompetent uh, yeah, well, well, dictator yeah, here. I mean, it's... Well, the, well that, that certainly plays a part. But, but the reason it goes on, so, so then they get counterattacked quite heavily opposite Moscow um, in, in early December 1941. But then both sides sort of run out of steam and it's winter. And, and so there's a sort of cooling off period in the front, you know, the snow's on the ground and nothing really happens for, for a while. And everyone, everyone's aware that, you know, what's going to happen in, in the following summers is going to be another renewed offensive by Germany. And of course, you know, between December and, and late July 1941, Germany's had a chance to build up its strength and all the rest of it. Soviet Union's had a chance to kind of get its factories that it's moved to the Urals back into gear, more T-34 tanks and all the rest of it. And they're they're blocking, you know, they're making Moscow absolutely impenetrable, which they do. But Case Blue, which is the operation in the summer of 1942, is driven towards the Caucasus. But by, by this point, it's no longer Operation Barbarossa, right? No, Operation Barbarossa ends, ends on the 25th of September 1941. So that being so... And this episode being about Operation Barbarossa, it's time I think to we have quiz. reached. I, could I just one before we end one last question, which I think is a great question. And I've always wondered, and it's asked by Nick Rogers and Dominic mentioned Napoleon and uh, Napoleon reaching Moscow, uh, and he asked, did Hitler or his generals at any point study Napoleon's Russian campaign and attempt to draw lessons from it? They did study it, but they thought that was then and this is now, and we've got lots of tanks. Okay. okay that's fair enough bro thanks ever so much now um if you have listened to this and enjoyed it and want to know in absolutely microscopic detail more about operation barbarossa about the second world war about every conceivable aspect of it there are two episodes that you've you've put out uh about a month ago on the planning for operation barbarossa which are fabulous and if you haven't listened to them go and check them out all the other episodes as well and am i right in thinking that you also have a um we have ways fest coming up. You are absolutely correct, bro. Oh, uh, on the twenty second to the twenty second to the twenty fourth of July, it's, a, it's um, for anyone who does listen to We Have Ways Pod. Um, then um, lots of your friends of the show, lots of historians. We've got historians from coming from America, from Canada, from Germany, Austria, Poland. Um, Lots and lots of trucks and, and hardware. <laughs> Dominic, that's your, it's your um, summer holiday sorted out. Is this the thing that happens can... in Bicester? Does it happen in Bicester? <laughs> near, right? near, near Silverstone Race Circuit, a place called Black Pit Brewery. Um, and it's a splendid place and it's a lot of fun. And, um, and, and you can find out more on wehavewaysfest.co.uk. Brilliant. We have wayswest.co.uk. And we will actually be returning, Tom, to this issue when we later in the summer yes, when we, we will. will be doing a podcast uh, with Ian McGregor, who's got a new book coming out this summer about Stalingrad. Which is terrific, by the way. It's a very, um, very good book. Oh, so it's got an endorsement from a top World War II historian or Second World War historian, I should say. Because yes. you ban the, the phrase World War II on We Have Ways, right, don't yeah. you? It's just, well, we're British, aren't we? So. <laughs> right. So on that bombshell, um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, will, uh, we will see Second you World War for you. We will see you next time for some uh, more trucks. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Cheerio. 
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom... How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe?